0: all right hello and welcome back to the Faultline podcast my name is tommy flanagan and after a brief hiatus i'm delighted to welcome back uh with our latest guest onto our humble b2b audio platform this is uh an executive who founded a company 13 years ago that has seen success in the personalized content recommendation space serving some 2 billion recommendations every month i hope that number is uh, up to date uh it's the prince of personalization, the sultan of semantics. Please welcome, all the way from a forest somewhere in the heart of France, Thibaut D'Orso, co-founder and CRO at Speedio. How are you today?
1: Very good. Thank you for the invitation,
0: Thank you for joining us. Um, so, as you might already know, tradition on the Faultline podcast is to... Troll back through our extensive archive of articles that stretches back over 20 years of coverage on media technology disruption to locate if and when you first appeared on the pages of Faultline. And Speedio's first reference came in September 2013 at IBC that year. So it took uh, three years after you were founded for us to kind of pick up the scent. And this was a, a snippet on how you just introduced what was called at the time, the Blended Content Discovery platform uh, IBC and that was targeted at pay tv operators you were highlighting at the time that it would work with any kind of pay tv platform delivering recommendations both live and on-demand content and um, also showcasing that it would extend to mobile devices too and IBC 2013 that was a couple of years before my time but at the show uh, my editorial predecessor and our current CEO spoke with your fellow co-founder Paul and he told us at the time that that would just been uh, installed at Canal Plus in France for driving recommendations between TV channels and VOD content. So my first question is to kind of revisit history and ask you whether the blended content discovery platform is still a thing, uh, you know, a whole decade later now, or has that itself been blended into another product? But um, either, either way, I think the important um, part is that Canal Plus is still a customer, I believe, right, now, 10 years later.
1: Yes, uh, Canal Plus still is a very important customer. Um, we don't talk too much about blend experience anymore. Um, I mean, we have uh, very different buzzwords now. If you want me to give you the, uh, the elevator pitch, I will give you that to me. Uh, so we don't talk much about blend anymore. Um, uh, we talk about opening the dialogue with the algorithm. We talk about, pre-humanization of algorithms. Uh, we talk about conversational experiences and how to make things transparent and controllable. Um, this is more, this is our approach. I mean, 10 years after the, the foundation of the company, I mean, even the the, the public opinion and the, and, you know, and the public in general are way more educated about the, the algorithms and personalization. And now it's also about um, giving people uh, empowering people to be at the at the core of the experience and making sure that they don't feel anxious about uh, how we're going to use their uh, personal data.
0: Okay, so what was what was the idea with blend? Is that just obviously more of a, a well, marketing term? What were you blending?
1: Blend at that time. The idea of blend was to actually blend um, several approaches, algorithmic approaches. Um, if you i mean if you give me a a minute i will perhaps i will start with a little bit of uh, history about uh, how we actually created the company um we created a company in in 2010 Uh, by that time i was still doing research in social sciences and my and my co-founders were already working uh gabriel Mandelbaum was already in the in the uh in the entertainment industry, working for the Zodiac Group. And, um, you know, when, um, one night we, have a, we had a, a conversation and we were discussing what was happening on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, Netflix was still very unknown uh, for uh, continental European uh, dudes at that time. And still we were fascinated by what was happening with the Netflix prize. The Netflix Prize was a big moment in the industry because it, it was a moment where suddenly there was a very strong highlight on recommender systems and um, what was fascinating for us was that most of the competitors did the uh, the competition with the same algorithmic approach and that approach that uh, is often uh, labeled um, collaborative filtering um we felt it was so far away from our own uh, personal experience of, of content recommendation. Uh, Gabriel and I we met as teenagers, and we were literally spending hours uh, um, during the weekend in a small uh, video club of Montmartre in Paris. Um, and we grew up with this idea that when you um, when you want to discover content, uh, you have a, a, a conversational experience i mean you there you you step in the video club and then you start talking with the video clerk and then you meet uh, people that um, uh, spend time in the video club with you and then there's a sense of community and then you start sharing ideas with these people and all of that is very human very conversational and we felt you know Netflix prize is mostly about copy pasting e-commerce recipes and put that in the entertainment. And yeah, if we felt we should invent something different.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, I know, I know we're obviously we're here to, to talk about technology and we will expand on that as the conversation goes on. But you know, one of the missions of the, the podcast is to, you know, peer into the, the the people behind the technologies because that's something we don't do in our day job on the pages of of Faultline. so kind of during this you know soul searching through the archive uh and on linkedin as well i know you 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 just mentioned some of your co-founders i noticed that paul who we had the conversation with our first meeting with speedy ibc 2013 who was your cto Mm -hmm. up until 2016 um i believe and now uh I notice he now works at AWS, but retains a position as an advisory board member. And, you know, this might be ancient history um, to you now, but I'm just curious to get on the record why Paul left so soon into the Speedio journey and also what his role is now. How hands on is it? Does he step on the toes of the current CTO? You know, what's the setup?
1: (laughs) No, um, we have a great relationship uh, with Paul. Paul wanted to, to do something else after five, six years, uh, with video because he felt that he had done most of his and what he had to do, uh, create the foundation of the technology. And then when he left, uh, there was a, there was a big tech team growing and he didn't want to take a managerial role. Uh, was not really his uh, cup of tea. Now he's working at, at Amazon. I mean, he learned a lot about, uh, about operations and how to, how to deploy, uh, steady and scalable, uh, environments, uh, using AWS. So, you know, Amazon was, uh, a very, uh, a very, uh, known technology for him when he left. And, uh, right now he's holding a position where he's, uh, basically, uh, like a VIP advisor for very big brands in the telco industry. Um, and I think it's, uh, I mean, having, as many children as he has i think it was creating more more comfortable position for himself but still yes you're right to say that paul is very close to the company and uh uh, we talk to him all the time and he is is at the ibc every year so it's always a good opportunity to catch up
0: okay great glad glad we cleared that one up for the record (laughs) so um after uh, after that 2013 debut in, in folklore, you, you had a you know, a few more fleeting mentions, but we didn't really cover you guys again until um, you kind of went into hibernation a bit, I suppose. And then there was a um, an announcement in July 2018 when you when you partnered with uh, nice people at work, NPOR, that's the uh, the QOE analytics vendor. And at the time, you um you kind of jointly proposed the idea of psychographic data, you know, sort of usurping demographic data you know in the battle for Mm -hmm. for churn prediction there was a big marketing push on churn prediction at the time and you were saying that psychographic data you know which is um, which is more about building up a a personality of individual users you know rather than relying mostly on on past viewing behaviors you were saying that that has a more inherent value to content providers because it was Mm -hmm. uh, allowing them to predict tastes and refine user segments you know using Mm -hmm. micro targeting techniques so again um, I, I wonder what came about from that partnership did any deals emerge from it is it is it still an ongoing relationship um and also have kind of perceptions changed on psychographic data because it's kind of seen as it's not you know it's not brand new term or um philosophy i suppose but or or is or is demographic data you know combined with past viewing behaviors is that still very much the de facto way of of doing things today yeah
1: well first I must pick up your word of hibernation. Um, <laughs> we we
0: have
1: we haven't been hibernating at all. We've been working a lot. Um and uh it it took us some time to actually start from um as you know a young startup uh and then become um a, a company really capable of both handling both big customers like uh, Canal Plus, Technicolor and Televisa by that time. And then having the resource to also communicate and then, uh, and grow. That's a totally different job. Um, so there was a lot going on, but not much on the communication front by that time. This is true. Um, so that being said for the hibernation, uh, uh, part of your, of your comment.
0: I use that word a lot. It does. It does annoy people.
1: <laughs> no, 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 that's all right. I find it really funny. Um, that being said, yes, nice people at work. We have a great relationship with nice people at work. Um, um, yes, we did have this idea that we we could build something pretty unique uh, on the market together because um, the data that they collect and they they work on is is mostly about usage. That means that they don't know much about the content attributes. They don't know much about what really people are interested in. What they do collect is a lot of information about um, about people usage and how people behave in front of their players and so on. So we said, um, with all the things that you collect uh, at the level of the player and all the things that we know about the content characteristics and what the people are interested in, um, we think we can create something very powerful to help our, our customers to indeed take actions and at that time taking action specifically on the on the the question of retention but more globally uh, take actions on um targeted uh marketing acknowledging what people are interested in and this is what we think is an important thing um it's one thing to send a personalized newsletter and say how about you discover um uh, the uh the last uh, movie that entered in the catalog about martial art, but you need to be very um, accurate as for whom you're going to send that, that recommendation. So it's really about being able to do that in a very accurate and granular way.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, have you won any deals on the back of that partnership?
1: Yeah, so the most interesting deal that we, uh, that we won together was uh, the one with Sky in Switzerland ah yeah that's uh it's uh, i mean i think by coincidence it's a deal that we forged together after nab sometimes uh european telco do the the journey and do the travel to nab and uh, we met there and we pitched that together and uh, we're fine
0: there we go an example of the importance of um being back together in physical brick and mortar events
1: yes that's right
0: (laughs) So, and and in terms of kind of um, the perception, the part of the question about the perceptions of, of, you know, psychographic data and demographic data and, you know, past mm. viewing behaviors, there seems to be a lot of advancements, but a lot of, you know, traditional customers, I suppose, still seem to be using you know, very traditional um, recommended for you techniques, I suppose.
1: Yes. Yes, this is true. I think, I mean, Gabrielle and I we're still pretty convinced that we're still at the prehist prehistory of uh recommendation experiences um there's a long tradition of of socio-demographic data and the and the in the tv industry because that was the way ads uh were actually um sold you know uh, you need to sell ads to uh, people below 30 or uh or urban people uh or urban ladies uh, below 40 you know that type of categories um still when it comes to providing personalized recommendation uh it's still as a very much uh observed fact that uh so- socio demographic data is very bad at, uh, at predicting uh, people's tastes um so doesn't mean that it's useless uh but it means that it has to be at least complemented with something else something that's much closer to you know what people can can identify for their for themselves and what their interest and their interests
0: yeah and, and on on a side note actually you know, someone from uh, enpol was actually supposed to be guesting on this podcast a, a few months ago but they yeah. ghosted us so uh, that doesn't give off very uh, nice people at work vibes does it so <laughs> if, if, if anyone there is listening to the podcast but <laughs> so um <laughs> anyway i think you know one of, that partnership was um one of many that was kind of representative of a trend um you know in recommendations that the companies are being squeezed to either you know look more like a metadata company or work more with metadata companies you know be that maybe because of the wealth of metadata out there and you know there's a growing number of sources of metadata and there's a, a drive for you know some sort of standardization I know it's a bit of a dirty word um depending where, which, which side of the debate you're from and I note that you've also jumped into bed with uh, Broadpeak and uh VXS Orca also both French companies so keeping things in the family to uh, those partnerships are about, you know, enhancing metadata with descriptors. And that's kind of what speedio, um, how we perceive speedios, uh, what you've always been good at, what you've been strong at, you know, the semantic side of recommendations, the natural language, understanding behind the content. Um, but of course um, the point of the conversation is, that, you know, you can't sit still in this space. You have to adapt, you have to innovate. Otherwise you'll end up like Ginny. Um, so the, the million dollar question is, you know, how is Speedio taking your sort of chef du and, and freshening it up for the, uh, the modern palette. <laughs> yeah, I like, your, I like the reference to Gini actually
1: because uh, Gini, <laughs> um, I mean, I remember that when we founded Speedio, we felt that uh, Gini was the only company on the market that was truly bringing something new, I mean, bring some fresh air uh, about really acknowledging the importance of of understanding people's taste. So, um, but you know, it's true, Gini didn't make it because they they didn't found the company to make it a B2B uh, company. And this is where they fell ultimately. Um, Anyway, so how do we innovate? Well, first of all, I think you were saying that there's a, that, you know, metadata is being standardized and becoming a commodity. Uh, Might be true now. But I, I mean, when we founded the company in 2010, I can remember that actually the main pain points of our customers was that they were actually complaining that they were relying on, on on very poor, uh, metadata. Um, and this is also that this is one of the reasons why we actually decided to invest so, so fundamentally, uh, in semantic enrichment. Now, after a few years, um, it's true that uh, metadata providers have been trying to create uh, what sometimes they call video descriptors or or semantic keywords. Um, still, I think if you really take a close a close look at the at those products, you will you will see very different levels of quality uh, in data. And I think uh, this is where we're good at. Uh, Uh, using, uh, certainly using AI to do this job, but also creating an incredible human expertise into crafting semantic data that is uh, robust, granular and 100% reliable. So um, innovation starts with, I would say, uh, you know, keeping a very important uh, keeping at the core of the product the quality and increasing quality of of the data and then it's also about building new user experience uh, out of this data and out of the algorithm uh, that are using this data
0: i purposely didn't want to um, mention the, the, the acronym AI myself, I wanted to gently goad you into <laughs> to bring it into conversation. Do you uh, build yourself as an AI or, and or machine learning company today?
1: No, actually I was, uh, I was taught by my colleagues to use that term uh, more often for, uh-huh. uh, for um, SEO purposes. I, I, I <laughs> totally agree with you, I don't like that term. Uh, I don't like that term because it's, uh, there's a, there's a, it's a very blurry uh, thing, uh, and people are not very so, there's so many things, uh, being fantasized behind AI that I don't like it very much, but, uh, I still use it because I must do it for communication purposes. I, I like, I'm better, li- I mean, there are terms that I prefer terms like, uh, uh, large language models, uh, machine learning. These are more adequate terms and also, human supervision behind machine learning which is absolutely uh, critical
0: mm-hmm. and are you actively using you know llms now in your in your research because i know certain other uh, rivals have been working with chat for example to enhance um their own products
1: yes well you know this is one of the the trendiest uh, topic of the moment uh, generative ai i remember having that at you know, attending a conference in in London at the beginning of the year and the, one of the question that uh, came up in the crowd was uh, is there do you have a feeling that uh, chat gpt is, is is a threat for the survival of your of your uh, company that was also tivo and and Think analytics around the table um, and uh, I mean we I remember that uh, TiVo answered saying, yes, potentially, but we're, we're also trying to learn about the you know the opportunities. And I think with a few months, perhaps almost a year uh, of working with that, um, it's very clear for us that um, uh, generative AI is going to create uh, something new in, in the sense that it's going to bring a potential alternative interface between end users and, and recommendation engines. Very complementary to mood boards and, and personalized playlists. Um, of course, the strength of generative AI is to simulate a conversation uh, in order to impersonate the algorithm. And we're not going to disappear because actually the role of Speedio is to put uh, empathy at the art, uh, the the heart of the relationship between our customers, brand, and the end users with an adequate tone of voice and, um, that needs to be fed with uh, knowledge about, about people and about what they are interested in. Um, another thing that I remember, um, we talked about during that conference was that we actually learned a lot with the implementation of voice experiences. Um, and in that sense, generative AI, uh, still is the continuity of that, uh, of that thing you know of the voice experiences and when we when we've been working on on the implementation of voice experiences uh, i mean the the output the outcome of what we learn is that most people use voice to say very simple things like take the volume up or down or go to channel one two three that kind of thing so you know, now uh, working on generative ai what's what we're uh, what we have in mind is actually that when creating a dialogue, uh, it's actually Speedio that has to take the initiative of the conversation by starting with what the system has understood of the user states and then asking uh, questions that can be answered with simple words. Yes, no, both, none. And it's actually taking the dynamic of the conversation the other way around. Uh, the machine taking the initiative of the dialogue and then uh, humans uh, giving feedback. Um, in an intuitive manner, uh, about what their about their preferences.
0: Yeah. It's very much about using, trying to use these things to, to your advantage and, um, whoever can get out in, in front in that respect is uh, going to be better positioned. Um, I'm glad you mentioned some of your competitors, uh, because as uh, regular listeners will know, we've already had one of them on the podcast. We've had mm-hmm. one of the founders of Think, Think Analytics, and, um, you know, while we don't really like to talk about, you know, market leaders or these other sort of, you know, competitive marketing terms that people throw around, it is kind of generally accepted that Think Analytics has wrapped up a very large slice of the available market. And it's pretty kind of immovable from, you know, it's this dominant position at most of the tier one um, providers. So, I mean, how do you combat that? Is there any kind of strategy to kick the analytics out of accounts or um are you very happy with the, the kind of position you've got and just keeping existing customers very happy
1: um uh, no i think it's it's very clear that we are challengers uh i mean we arrived in the industry uh, long after them of course so we need to catch up um, um they've been taking a very strong position even before we arrived in the industry um and i think the dynamic is that we're uh, clearly catching up so i don't i wouldn't say that uh, they are I, I don't what is the term that you said unremovable um
0: uh immovable I think. <laughs>
1: immovable i don't know um no look i think um if you want to grow and have a solid position it takes uh it takes some very solid customers uh, i mean today the position their position is very strongly rooted on their relationship with Liberty Global. We have our own, uh, very strong customers, um, groups like Altice and Canal Plus. Um, and now is the time for SPDO to actually, um, build a bigger brand awareness and grow outside France and, uh, in Central Europe, uh, in North America, and in Latin America, so it's a, it's an exciting moment, and growth is. Uh, I mean, we've had a terrific last three years, and growth is, is, is happening fast.
0: It's funny because you're kind of talking like Speedio is a startup, but, you know, mm-hmm. founded in in 2010. You're pretty well established as well, but I mean, those T1 um, uh, customers you named, you know, you've got you've got some big big. Clients on your uh, on your mm-hmm. list, but you know they are what we'd call you know traditional uh, operators. You know even even legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that expansion that you just mentioned is that does that involve also kind of attracting the the pure play streaming um, providers, um, or is it is it more about um, those traditional pay TV operators?
1: Yes, because you know even the traditional TV operators are uh, they they need to reinvent themselves uh, if they want to survive. If- you you take the example of a company like Globo, for example, in Brazil. Um, when we arrived in Brazil, I remember uh, people in Brazil were saying, wow, Globo, you know, that's a big brand. It's like uh, the grandpa and grandmother of every uh, Brazilian citizen. Um, and this brand was uh, synonymous of, of live TV channel. Uh, but now if you take a look at the, the way they, uh, they are they are developing um globo.com is now prominent uh, in the group and the global play platform has become uh, the uh, the most important brand uh, in the global group um and global play is the number one um, ott platform even i think even uh, still uh, on top of uh, of netflix in brazil so i mean these big brands um, if they want to succeed, they need to reinvent themselves. And I think Canal Plus Group has been able to do that also with the My Canal app. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you can talk about legacy and this is true. There is legacy and they're going to keep their old, old school uh, subscribers, but they're at the same time, they're also preparing for the future.
0: Mm -hmm. This is a, a good opportunity, I think, to mention some numbers some figures from yeah. my cle- clever colleagues over at Rethink TV. That's the uh, the sister forecasting service default line. And they put up some research last year, mm-hmm. finding that the the annual cost of content recommendation engines are set to plateau, you know, which mm-hmm. is not a great shock, really. That's, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of naturally how, how things work. But the, the most damning projection, projection is that vendors are set to lose over 75% of the total video recommendations market to in-house builds by 2027 so how do you solve a problem like self-build
1: so yes i think these numbers are coming from uh, rafi Cohen's report and i think it was a a very very good report um yes you're right um we also we also say that all the time our main competitor today is not the sync analytics uh not crossroad media uh it's it's really the 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 dynamic of uh, in-house building uh, recommendation, and I think this this comes with experience. I mean, uh, our best projects are projects with customers who have tried to actually build recommendation systems themselves uh, in the past, because then they've been experiencing uh, experiencing the complexity of doing that and educated about uh, also uh, the the cost that it takes to actually maintain and make your product evolve with the the state of the art so um it's the same thing i think yes you're right saying that we've been here for 10 years but 10 years is still very new and uh, i think tier ones and big companies um they will they will they will change in the way they will approach uh, recommender systems uh and i think that first generation of systems that are uh built in-house uh, won't be in-house uh, forever
0: it's such a common pain point when i speak to executives in the recommendations world about they're just mm-hmm. horrified about the millions and millions of dollars that content uh um, mm-hmm service providers have wasted trying to build these systems in-house when they just just wish they could have come to them in the first place and spent a fraction of the money and just done it properly
1: yeah and i think i mean if you talk to to executives and in, in you know telco telco companies or uh, if you talk to ott pure players um they will all tell you stories about You know, the horrible uh, processes and the time that they spent before actually releasing a version, uh, version number one, uh, that is not even uh, satisfactory uh, in terms of user experience. So it's a matter of cost. It's a matter of time to market. And I think, and I mean, in the future, what will be even more obvious is that uh, if you're not doing that as a I mean, uh, if you're not just a, a specialist of recommender systems, then you can build a system that is going to become obsolete uh, pretty soon. So, um, again, that means getting back to um, new technologies, new stacks, new people uh, that are educated with the new stacks, new costs, and again and again. And and that, for that reason, I think. Um, in-house recommender systems are not really sustainable unless you are amazon and netflix and for and for that reason i think the future is going to be a, a future where um uh executives are going to get back to to the specialists and, and recommender systems
0: okay interesting so from customers to consolidation you know mm-hmm. um lots of uh uh, facets of, of the media technology ecosystem have been subjected to consolidation the recommendation space is no different you know we had uh tibo digital smiths mm-hmm. then merged with rovi get acquired again by Xperi. we've had the filter bought by 24i recently cinemedia snapped up mm-hmm. utelli and then there's uh you, you mentioned uh, crossroad media as well that's the name i haven't heard for a while Ginny disappeared and then there's content wise I don't really know what's going on with content-wise. I've had uh, a few horror stories um, about them, but you know, my my question here is: um, how has uh, Studio uh, resisted consolidation after um, all these years? You know, I'm sure you've had an acquisition offer or, or two over 13 years of business. Maybe even some of the companies I've just mentioned have tried to acquire you first.
1: <laughs> yes, I mean I can't mention uh, the people <laughs> personally, but yes, you're right. I think since the beginning, we've had about ten propositions uh, for acquisition. Wow! <laughs> uh, starting with our first, uh, very first customer. I mean, uh, uh, Canal Plus also made a proposition in the beginning, uh, and then uh, and then we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's no hurry about this. Let's do business together. And then after a couple of years, uh, we had a few other significant customers. So if they wanted to acquire the company was going to be uh, much more expensive than uh, what they were anticipating so and they were pretty happy actually that we were now uh, a growing company and made things much easier and uh, for them too so yes you're right uh, there's a, a very strong uh, dynamic of consolidation well i'll tell you what uh uh gabriel mandelbaum and i were not really uh perhaps that was that's one of the differences that we have when i read the rafi cohen's report the the report was very much i mean the, the report's conclusion was that you know um consolidation was going to happen now and that uh actually um it's almost as if the recommender systems were already on the decline. And I think I have a very, a totally different view on this. Um, first of all, because I think that the, the first generations of recommender systems are still very poor, uh, from a, a user experience perspective. And I think we're still at the very beginning of educating the industry and in doing that, that thing properly. And, I also think that um, you know platforms like China Media uh, or I don't know how to call them, you know, like uh, system integrators are not necessarily the best players on the market today to actually uh, embody and incarnate uh, that. That 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 education and the, the, the expertise that is required uh, when talking about recommender systems. So I totally understand the dynamic that now it becomes a must-have. So some of the system integrators need to have that in their portfolio. Uh, but I think that you know ultimately the winners will be uh, the ones who can actually embody uh, the specificities and the expertise of recommender systems, and we're we're not there yet I think
0: okay so saying that in a sort of roundabout way consolidation could be good for business if there's continued consolidation and you manage to resist consolidation and to stay as one of the few independent providers in the the market that could give you an opportunity to thrive
1: Yeah, you know uh, perhaps the time for consolidation will come and perhaps that consolidation will also involve some of the vendors that uh, I mentioned, uh, bringing forces together. Um, What I do think is that uh, what our customers are are just learning now is that uh, the value of a recommender system is not just on the user experience uh, side of things. It's also a lot about how it, it impacts their their workflows with content management and how it impacts their workflows with um with CRM uh and direct marketing and it takes time to actually make people in these companies in telco companies and and OTT companies it takes time to actually bring all these teams together and and understand this, the the value of the synergies uh Using the recommender system to collect uh, reliable data that can be used for the uh, for the ad network can be used for uh, personalized uh, um, personalized imagery or for personalized uh, um, emails. Um, you know, most of the time, CRM teams and uh, UX teams they they hardly work together. So it actually takes time to create that, that that understanding of the synergies uh and the value of these synergies
0: i mean with 10 propositions you know that one of these days one of them is going to be the right price mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone has a price
1: <laughs> everyone has a price you're right but i think what we're trying to do with uh, with gabriel is to um actually we're I mean, we're obsessed with uh, our mission. Our, our mission again is to uh, create a standard of user experience where uh, end users and where people are at the heart of the experience where they can have a feeling of transparency and controllability. And um, it's that thing is still not mainstream, and it's still not the standard type of of, of integrating uh, recommender systems. So um, this thing will happen at some point because um, because people are going much more educated about recommender systems and what's at stake with the recommender systems. Uh, but we're we're still trying to push this vision, and and there's no doubt we'll find partners to uh, perhaps take that that vision uh, to. Uh, to another scale, but uh, again, as I said, we're not there yet, and Speedio has a lot of work to still do in order to educate the market
0: so speaking of the future, we have to talk about i b c um you know yeah. starting out talking about i b c twenty thirteen and now talking about i b c twenty twenty three Can you tell us a bit about mm-hmm. what you guys have planned for there, and you know to to hit on another buzzword will you be building on your fast presence? Because you know, back at um, NAB in April this year, we learned about you providing Harmonix Cloud Playout system with uh, algorithms to automate scheduling, which I understand is one of the biggest headaches for you know, fast channel um, providers. So uh, yeah, will you be building on that at IBC?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, we will be talking about uh, personalized fast channels. Um, it's still very experimental, I have to say um very experimental in the sense that uh even our our customers are still not quite sure about uh how much money they're gonna they're gonna be able to um to to gain with with fast um but i think still there is a very strong feeling that if you're not experimenting now you're going to be late in the process so Yes this is very experimental uh, when it comes to personalized fast I think there is a, also a lot to explain about what even the notion of personalization means in in the domain of, of, of fast channels um, it's very different from the VOD experience where personalization is really a recommendation at the the individual level um, when it comes to fast what we mean by personalization is is mostly happening at at the level of the audience, at the level of clusters of people uh, sharing, um, sharing topics of interest. Um, and so personalization in the, in the world of fast is something that uh, would only make sense if we, if we can convince our customers that they can build greater value with qualified audiences with an aggregation of qualified audiences instead of big volumes of
0: unqualified people it's a it's a big kind of topic of debate at the moment about you know what really is a personalized fast channel and are they economically <clears throat> viable um, are you saying you what where you're currently at is with the clustering process so personalizing in more of a sort of uh, YouTube playlist type um, um, profile rather than you know very Individually personalized channels.
1: Yes, you're right, Tommy. Because I mean, technically speaking, uh, there's nothing preventing us to actually create personalized uh, streams. It's it's more at the the level of the business model. Does it really make sense to actually I mean, involve cost for individualized streams when the monetization is going to be made at the level of the audience anyway? So um, it's more about finding the right compromise between. Um, building lean back experiences for uh, clusters of people um, and still bring that level of uh, of personalization that gives you the feeling that uh, you know the, that your platform understands you and that your platform is helping you with finding a stream that is going to be relevant for you instead of spending twenty minutes browsing into the catalog you know and that's it's the right compromise to be found
0: yeah exactly and is this the the kind of thing you're targeting directly um because the, the deal i just mentioned is obviously via harmonic rather than you know a deal directly with um you know a sky or a canal please so, so how does that work so
1: yeah um actually we work uh in parallel with uh, with our customers and also with partners um people like Broadpeak, uh, harmonic and uh, even mediagenics um have a, have a key position on the market, uh, because they've been there working with, uh, with broadcasters for, you know, their traditional, uh, uh, linear experiences. And, um, and because of that, they have a key role because they will be the ones creating the transition. Um, so we work a lot with them, uh, to create the conditions for that smooth transition. And also create the conditions for experimenting these things and uh, putting hard figures on the fact that, yes, indeed, a certain level of personalization brings uh, more value. Um, And on the other side of the spectrum, with some of our biggest customers, uh, hybrid customers who are both aggregators and broadcasters, um, in that sense, Claro is one of them, Candle Plus is one of them. Um, we have the capability to experiment along with them uh, and and derive, you know, uh, f- you know, first level of information and, and a direct source of, 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 um, of knowledge about this, this experimentation.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Unfortunately, I won't be on the ground myself at IBC to learn more and report it to our readers. But we will have plenty of manpower on the ground. We're going to have three colleagues there, so we won't be short. So um I can't let you go, closing out, Tiba, I can't let you go without asking you about your side hustle, which I didn't actually know until stalking your LinkedIn profile just before recording this. But um, in early 2020, you founded a company called Rumo, uh, which is pitched as the first SaaS-based recommendations platform specifically designed for cultural and creative content across video, audio, sports, video games, books, yeah. and events. So can you tell us a bit more about this sort of? Adjacent venture because I'm a bit confused about how this fits in with Speedio and why this is a separate company and not a sort of product branch of, of Speedio. You probably get asked that a lot.
1: <laughs> yes, and uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not a company, it's a product. You're right to say so. Uh, we decided to actually incubate that new product within the Speedio company. So it's not okay. a company in itself. Still, it is a very different uh, business. Um, so we wanted to highlight that, uh, on, on our LinkedIn account, at least for the people that have been directly involved, uh, in the studio company, uh, and the creation of the Rumo product. Um, it's very different because, um, uh, when you're going beyond uh, the OTT and streaming and, and you know, media and entertainment world, and, uh, when you're working with, uh, audio platforms or and domains and or different domains like books or events or ticketing or, or um, some of these platforms don't have uh, the you know the level of maturity and the financial strength that you you have in the biggest tier ones uh telco or, or, or ott platforms so the product has had to be built in a much lighter version um also a version where um, um, there's more work, actually more work to be done uh, on, this, on the customer's side. Um, and this is the only condition for making this product actually cheaper, uh, more affordable uh, than let's say the premium video licenses. And um, it's really, a, the big difference I, I would say is that it's, it's a more do-it-yourself type of approach where um, we're using our expertise and the tools that we have crafted along the years uh, with PDO and put that in the hands of directly in the hands of our customers. And for some reason, actually, it actually helped us grow with um, uh, with niche platforms in the video uh, market as well. So it's it had a it had a an unexpected uh, unexpected. Um, collateral effects on our business for, for the video platforms themselves. Uh, we would certainly never have been able to work with a, a niche platform like Tank, which uh, is a specialist of, uh, of documentaries or niche platform, uh, niche platforms for uh, Japanese anime uh, without that product. So it's, it's creating a, an interesting now an, an interesting approach on the market. Still, uh, the positioning of Rumo is a side product taking Speedio as an extension, uh, beyond, uh, the video and, and OTT market.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Thanks for clearing that. Up. And that explains what we were talking about earlier about why it sounds like you're talking like a startup, <laughs> not, not, because I suppose in a <laughs> sense that uh, Rumo is a kind of uh, a startup venture uh, as a, as a sort of branch of Speedio. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah,
1: that absolutely. makes sense.
0: All right. That's, um, that's a good place to, to wrap up, I think. So, uh, Thank you very much for, for joining us today. That was a really interesting chat and best of luck for IBC. And, you know, if you get an acquisition offer at the show, then I'm expecting a commission check in the post.
1: <laughs> you, you can be sure to me that you will be the last one to know because every time you speak, everybody knows. Uh, but anyway, I, I guess Quantin will be here. So we'll yes, absolutely. There. And uh, I, have, I have to finish that conversation with a uh, congratulation
0: for your, for your family. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. And thanks for everyone for listening to the podcast today. We'll be back with another uh, pre-IBC guest episode in uh, in the coming weeks. We've got a few lined up before IBC. So thanks again, everyone. Cheers.